Hello, good evening, good day, everybody. I hope you're all doing very well, and welcome to the 160th episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. Thank you for being on the live stream. And today I'm going to take questions from the comments. Yesterday it was all about the live chat. Today it's all about the comments. So let's see who all is there on the live stream, on the live chat with us. I can see. I can see Twilight. I can see Ice Cold Hamzo Sanidhya. Anant Mishra, Amit Mahajan, Animish, Devesh Chetri, Abhinav, Suraj Lambodhar, Obama, <laughs> Parth Chaudhary, Chingam, Kamlesh Singh, Ketan, Arman, Akshay, Drubajyoti, Aditya Kumar Shaw, 30291, Harbi on Wheels, Shubhayu, Lord Maximus, Priyanka, GK, Ritesh, Pikabu, Aman Saini, Patel, Rudra, um, Twilight, Sumedha, Binge, Vitality, Vishal, Lage Raho, Online Game, Bread, Masvidal, Von Bok, Kishore, Ajit, Sakul, Liger, Vishnu, Mohanan, Tuti Futi, Abhijit Gupta, Abhigya, Ashok, Alpha, Yashas, Feminist Slayer, Manish, Chaudhary, Prasad, Kulkarni, Dungar Singh, Johan, Sigma, Ten, Swapnil Mishra, Tanmay Deshpande, Avnesh, Samrat, Debosmith, Devraj, Dr. Jayashankar, Supremacy, Aman, and lots and lots of other people. Uh, who else? Who else? Who else? I can see other people. Uh, I can see Ayush. I can see Sam, Note 8 Pro, Saurabh, Shashwat, Jatin, KVK, Tabby B, Devraj, Aman, Parthagiri Goswami, uh, Sai Nikhil, Explorer, Captain Anonymous, Aditya Sen, Sakshi Rawut, and everybody else. All right, all right, all right. So nice to see you all, and so nice to have you all with us on the live stream. Uh, so, so, shall we begin with the questions? Let us begin with the questions. Uh, I Let's go. Where are the questions? Let's find what are the questions, and what is question number one? Question number one is by Pavan Kalyan. And the question is, India has military bases in other nations like Tajikistan, Seychelles, etc. Why is there no military base for other countries, even friendly ones in India? <laughs> that's that's an interesting question. So uh, let's find out where the military bases are in India. Uh, let us see. We have to obviously go to the map. because. Uh, so let's go to the map. So India has military bases in other places. For instance, like uh, Pawan says, we have a military, we have one or maybe two military bases in Tajikistan, the Farkhor Air Base and the Aini Air Base. Uh, I expect at least one of them is operational. Then we have uh, military bases, naval bases in the Seychelles. We have one in Mauritius territory. So Mauritius, Seychelles, we also have Oman, which is our neighboring country in case most of us don't know, but it's actually a neighboring country of India's. I think it's Dukm, if I am not mistaken, somewhere here. So India does have air, military bases in certain nations, certain friendly nations. The question is, why do other nations not have military bases in India, especially friendly ones? So we have to ask ourselves this simple question, which are the friendly nations for India? Which nations are... They have a friendly disposition towards India. One could say Russia has a friendly disposition towards India. Well, Russia most likely has not asked India for any military base. And India as a genuinely large sovereign nation 
would not want to take sides in it in geopolitical conflicts so right now the geopolitical conflict is we know we have the ukraine war going on and russia is the is the bad guy that's what the west says so it's russia versus the us essentially russia versus nato russia versus the eu so india wants to stay neutral all right india doesn't want to become part of other people's fights and conflicts so that's why it, it doesn't make sense for india to uh, have russian air bases because then we are inter- if you have a military base of another nation on your territory it means you're officially an ally and you have officially taken sides india doesn't want that india wants to keep options open all options open similarly we don't want to have a single us military base on our territory we will give them overflight facilities refueling facilities if required and so on but we, uh, india will not allow the americans to have military bases on our territory the question is is america a friendly nation not quite it's not especially hostile overtly but in uh, the us is a nation that doesn't want to see india rise too much and we can see uh, all kinds of signs and symptoms of that from america's behavior so they talk about democracy they say india is a great partner and they are co- cooperating with india in certain things they want to use india as a counterweight to china all these things are there but it's not an especially friendly nation so the friendly nations for india are the small ones right like seychelles like tajikistan like like the like uh, mauritius etc and these nations don't have any large militaries or any such thing so they would there's no point for them to have a military base in india so for these reasons mainly because of our sovereign status mainly because we don't want to get embroiled in other people's fights and other people's wars and conflicts because of these reasons we are not having military bases on of other nations in our ter- on our territory and whatever military bases we do have i am sure that we are paying very well for that and we are also providing um military cover and support to the nations which are hosting us so it's a win win situation from both from from all sides for us as well as for them so if we have a military base in the territory of seychelles it is kind of we are offering protection to the seychelles we don't have any territorial aspirations to take seychelles territory same with mauritius but by having the indian military or indian navy and, and air force on their territory it offers them protection because we have had instances in the past when small nations have been invaded by mercenary forces in the 1980s the maldives there was a coup attempt in the maldives uh, a bunch of uh, mercenaries some of them associated with the ltte etc they tried to take over the maldives and india had to send its navy and air force to to rescue the maldivian government so imagine if india has a, a military base in the maldives such a thing simply won't happen so india is providing security cover to these nations and i'm sure india is you know there must be some arrangements maybe india is paying for it or something suitable so that's how it is done and that's why india doesn't host other nations military bases because essentially if you're hosting someone's military base it it kind of it kind of makes you their client or their vassal in in some sense at least it does and india as a large powerful sovereign nation will will not have that doesn't make sense for us to have that all right okay jay krishna says i have only watched a few of your videos but i came to understand that you support the modi government or at least the current state of the modi government and openly title current congress as weak malleable as 
etc i understand the reasons you conclude as a speculative 12th grader isn't it okay to assume that even modi government has flaws and assume that congress doesn't in different places i know that you probably do recognize this i don't hear about it in the media considering the current society where those who shout the loudest succeed could you also discuss if possible the different positives and negatives of the competitors and all that uh yes i do support the modi government for good reason because i support india i want to see india progress and look at the achievements of the modi government in the past uh, whatever however long it's been 7 8 years in since 2014 approximately 150 million indians have been uplifted out of extreme poverty i i showed the statistics um, a couple of weeks ago right so and so much development is happening so much infrastructure is being built the military is finally being taken care of there are no more scams which are eating away the money allocated for the military and other things and going into various politicians pockets uh, so so much has improved i want to see india do well i want to see india rise to its full potential and the modi government is doing it so obviously i will support the modi government it's not like i have some emotional connection to this government or that government my video is lagging wonderful wonderful the video is lagging buffering lagging buffering lagging that's what people are saying which is unfortunate how do i fix this it's it's uh, this this sort of thing has happened in the past as well let's see if i am able to fix this let's see give me a second this is something that crops up from give me a second let's let's try and fix this problem if i can okay uh please give me some feedback is it working full lag audio and video is constantly pausing is it better is it better i hope it's better can anyone see me and hear me is it fine now i think it seems to be okay now somebody is saying that the cia is watching it is possible yes <laughs> okay i i think it seems to be it seems to be good now some people are saying it's good some people are saying it's lagging test your lag by saying my name what's your name lambodar obama is it fine now is it, i i think it's fine now okay i'm going to go ahead with this i think it's fine now so the question is why do i support the modi government the the answer is very simple i support india i want to see india do well look at the performance of the governments in the past look at the performance look at the track record and look at the track record of this government obviously there are deficiencies in every government but clearly this government is possibly the best we have ever had you may agree or disagree this is my perspective you can feel free to disagree with me all right but look at this from a data driven and, and that sort of perspective from facts not based on emotions indians are extraordinarily emotional people they get attached to certain personalities and they worship start worshiping those personalities look at the performance based on statistics and figures and facts and data 
this government, the Modi government, has done has performed way better than any government in past government in living history. Of course, there are problems. I am extremely unhappy with the education system and the fact that nothing is being done about it. This new education policy is is it's it's you know it's it's ridiculous. It's like putting a band-aid on a gunshot wound. So clearly the Modi government is not doing enough when it comes to educational reforms. Look at the state of tourism in the country. So much more can be done about tourism. India can become, India has the potential to be the number one tourism superpower in the world, but we are not doing enough for that. And it's all about, I mean, the tourism ministry has offices in other countries. And they they send officials on deputation to other countries. It costs so much money to have these offices. What is what is the output? Is this money being used properly? We need to shut down all the foreign offices. Today, you don't need to have offices in New York City and Sydney in a prime real estate area to promote Indian tourism. We can all do it online. So why is this money being wasted? What's, what's the return on investment on all this enormous amount of money we are spending by having these offices in other countries and sending Indian officials there? It's like a vacation for them. They're not really contributing anything. That's, that's another issue. Look at the state of Indian culture. The Ministry of Culture, I think, may be one of the worst performing ministries in India. There are lots of issues. But from the big picture perspective, the Modi government is doing far better than any other government in living history, in living memory. When it comes to defense, when it comes to um, building up the economy, when it comes to manufacturing, on the major issues, the core critical issues that are vital to the national interest, they are doing excellent. So that's why I support this government and I, I will keep supporting it. So the question is, are the positives and negatives of competitors? Please, let's not even talk about the positives of other competitors. I don't see any positive any any other competitor competitor. It's like you know these days it's it's become a, a, it's become a fad or it's become fashionable that we have to see both sides of the story. When one side is the truth and one side is the lie, then why should we see lies? That's what happens in these media debates, these news channel debates, nine pm debates, and all that. We have to see both sides of the story. So one one side is is speaking about facts and one side is misrepresenting everything lying about everything and some side some certain political outfits are openly anti-national i'm not taking names but i'm just saying this certain some so why do we have to give them the same uh, focus and in, in, in the same weightage and the same screen time as as the <laughs> as the others i just don't get it you may think i'm biased yes i am biased i'm biased towards india and that's why i support the modi government that's just what it is. All right. <laughs> Next. Amit Iqbal says, uh, okay, two questions. Do you think chat GPT-4 can have consciousness? AGI, artificial general intelligence at this stage. If it has, can can it fake that it doesn't have consciousness at this moment intentionally? Hmm. So it's, it's it may be actually conscious, but it will pretend like it's not conscious. Interesting. The other question is, how, what do you think the current relationship between India and Bangladesh is. Many of the Bangladeshi people think that Bangladesh is already sold to India. How much of this is true? Okay, so this is from Bangladesh. Thank you, sir. Uh, I don't think uh, ChatGPT4 has artificial general intelligence. I don't think it's become conscious. It certainly passes the Turing test, which means that if you're communicating with it via text, chatting with it, you can't tell whether it's human or not. 
which means it's passed the Turing test. It can very well pretend to be human. You really can't tell if it's a, a chatbot or an actual intelligence, actual human per person talking to you from the other side of the screen. So it's clearly passed the Turing test. It's it's really reached that stage for sure. I don't think it's become conscious. I don't think it's become self-aware. It answers all your questions. It answers your questions extremely intelligently. It can help you learn things. It can correct your mistakes. And it can have a conversation like, like two people have a conversation. And yet it's, it's still uh, not conscious. So that's my view about this. In the future, if something becomes conscious, it can, well, if you, if a system, let's say hypothetically in the future becomes conscious, it can certainly pretend like it's not conscious. It can certainly fool people. This can happen, yes. But I don't think we are, we are at that stage yet. Maybe chat GPT-5 may be closer to AGI status, artificial general intelligence status. status. Chat GPT-4 is definitely way more powerful than the 3.5 version. And yet, uh, I, do, I do not believe it's conscious. Maybe it's maybe machines will, will never really become conscious the way we are conscious. That doesn't mean that they won't, they will not become super intelligent. There's a difference between super intelligence and consciousness. A machine may be way more intelligent than the average human being. An IQ of 200, let's say, hypothetically. It's possible. And yet, it may not be conscious. But, yeah, it doesn't mean that it's not dangerous and not, not powerful. Yeah. Right. The second question is about Bangladesh. I think the uh, relationship between India and Bangladesh is pretty fine. The Bangladeshi government is uh, certainly positively inclined towards India. There's a lot that India and Bangladesh can do together. We have a lot of shared interests, a lot of common interests. And, and, and if if uh, we have a positive relationship, it will help, help both nations for sure. Um, what I see, this is my observation, is that lots of Bangladeshis now are anti-India. For what reason? I don't know what it is. Well, India has not done anything to Bangladesh, but lots of Bangladeshis. There is a sentiment, especially among the young people in Bangladesh, which is very strongly anti-India and pro-Pakistan. It's like they have forgotten history. They have forgotten what the Pakistanis did to Bangladesh just uh, less than half a century ago. Totally forgotten. Uh, half a century ago. Yeah, The genocide. Of course, the genocide was mainly Hindu. So maybe the Bangladeshi people, average Bangladeshi doesn't identify with that. Uh, so I don't know what it is. I have not delved deep into the Bangladeshi psyche. But I find that Bangladesh, the, the average person in Bangladesh is becoming more and more anti-India and pro-Pakistan which I find perplexing, but maybe it should not be surprising. Maybe it has something to do with the religion, perhaps. Okay, I'm speculating, but I, that could be the thing. So maybe it's because of this that lots of Bangladeshis think that Bangladesh is sold to India because the, um, uh, because the current government, Bangladesh government, is certainly pro-India. And, and it's cooperating with India. We have lots of... Uh, it's It's a... The, the, the Prime Minister of Bangladesh has a very good relationship with the uh, Prime Minister of India and so on. So, uh, I don't think Bangladesh is sold to India in any way whatsoever. Uh, they are even open to having uh, Chinese investments and perhaps even offering a port in some way to, uh, to, the, to the Chinese, you know, part of this uh, Chinese string of pearls strategy. So, I think Bangladesh in some way is hedging its bets, kind of trying to balance India and China. Uh, so I don't think Bangladesh is sold to India at all. Uh, from my perspective, the people of Bangladesh are the same people as us, same past, the same heritage, the same ancestry, same, the culture is gone now, mainly. That's a different thing. So I think it makes a lot of sense for India and Bangladesh to have an extremely strong and positive and mutually beneficial relationship. I don't think India... Uh, 
covets Bangladeshi territory. We we gave it. We we gave Bangladesh freedom, and lots of Bangladeshis feel that it was the Mukti Bahini that fought the war of independence in 1971 and, and won independence. That's that's I think what what is taught to the people of Bangladesh that the Pakistanis were defeated by the Mukti Bahini and India only came at the last second to claim victory. That is an incredible, extraordinary joke. Look at it from a realistic perspective. The Mukti Bahini, where did all the weapons come from? Where did all the training come from? Do you think they were in any position to fight the Pakistani army? Come on. So, uh, overall, I think India and Bangladesh should have a very positive, very friendly, very strong relationship. We have so much in common. Our entire past 10,000 years, we have in common. And hopefully, we can have a good future also together. Uh, so, yeah, that's my perspective. I, I I would like to see a stronger, more positive, more friendly, and more mutually beneficial relationship going forward into the future, along into the future, between India and Bangladesh. Neodymium says, we believe that getting access to Pakistan-occupied Kashmir might help us get access to Central Asia. But why is Central Asia important to India? We have seen various summits between our leaders and Central Asian nations, but these nations are not so active in the geopolitical game and not even large economies. So what's on the table for us if we offer their goods access to a market as large as ours? Okay, this is a good question. Uh, let's take a look at what Central Asia is. It's this entire region, right? Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, um, and so on. That's Central Asia. Uh, so the question is, why why is India interested in Central Asia? These countries have nothing to offer, apparently. These are not geopolitically powerful nations. No, what you don't understand here is that this is the Central, this is the Eurasian heartland. If you look at Eurasia from a geostrategic perspective, let's say from the Mackinder theory perspective, the heartland is whoever controls the heartland of, of Eurasia, which happens to be Central Asia, whoever controls that will control the entirety of Eurasia. So that's why Central Asia is so important. And of course, Central Asia is mineral rich, resource rich. They have so much resources. There is oil, there is gas, there is copper, there are the rare earth. There are so many other things. It's like virtually untapped. So that itself should tell you how important Central Asia is. Secondly, uh, whoever controls Central Asia will control much of Eurasia and will be a, in a geo, geo strategic pole position. And of course, Central Asia is it gives us passage all the way to Europe. If you don't have access to Central Asia, how will you build railway lines and, and roads all the way to Europe? How we, Let's say I want to drive by car. Okay? To, to Let's say I want to drive by car to Paris. How do I do it? We had access. If we build roads through Afghanistan all the way into Central Asia, we will get access to, to Europe through road. Why not have that access? See, we are thinking in a very constrained manner. We see the India, India is actually completely cut off. There is no land access to Eastern Asia or Western Asia or Central Asia. The only access we have is through India's Northeast. Tibet is cut off. Pakistan is cut off. We are not able to reach Afghanistan. So we are completely cut off. We should have land access to the entirety of Eurasia and we don't have it by road as well as by train. So it's vital for us. It will immensely benefit our economy if we have that. It doesn't cost a huge amount of money to build railway lines and roads, but we need to have access. So the big market is in Europe. The big market is Russia. If we have access to Central Asia, the Russians can build a pipeline and, and directly send us oil and gas. 
instead of uh, having it delivered to India by by oil tanker. You know, these big ships. It's way more expensive to have oil delivered by tanker. How imagine you have pipelines that deliver Russian oil into India. So it can be done if we have access to Central Asia. These are the reasons why Central Asia is so important. That's why in the 19th century we had the great game. The great game was the battle for dominance in Central Asia between the between the Russian Empire and the British Empire. That's the reason why it is so geo geopolitically, geostrategically important. Don't look at the land and very few people live there and, and um, these are not powerful nations. It's not that. That's not the real value of Central Asia. So the value of Central Asia is for the reasons I just outlined. So that is what, uh, it's not about us selling goods to Central Asia and getting some money. No, it's about access. If you access, so if you have access to Central Asia, you have access to the entirety of Eurasia, essentially the world, the world island. That's what it is about. So we have to think bigger. Don't just think of um, think in terms of how much money can we make out of this and all that. It's much bigger. Think if you people tell me that they want India to be a superpower, but they can't think from that perspective. You can only be a superpower if you think big, bigger. Don't think about what, what, how much trade can we have with Central Asia. No, it's not about the trade. It's about something much bigger, something much bigger than that. So that's why Central Asia is extremely important. Ahana says, Saudi Arabia has recently mended ties with Iran and we saw it welcome the Syrian president, Mr. Bashar al-Assad and his first lady, the first lady recently. China was attributed to the Iran development while Russia has been credited for the Syrian one. What surprise awaits us next per your opinion? What unlikely duo will team up and will Brazil, will it be Brazil or South Africa that's going to be seen as a deal breaker or peacemaker next? Look, yeah, it's a, it's a good question you're raising here. So th they have publicly given credit to China for the Iran-Saudi Arabia rapprochement and uh, Syria is uh, essentially a Russian protectorate right now. So uh, the development with Syria, obviously the credit will be given to Russia. So what surprise awaits us next? Look, uh, surprise. Look, so South Africa is not a very important nation. It's not resource rich. It's not a big economy. It's not a big geopolitical player. It doesn't have any big enemies. So South Africa is not going to be the thing. Brazil, Brazil is a huge nation, as you can see. It, it's like a significant portion of Latin America, South America. Very big, big uh, geographical territory, Brazil. But it's not a very large economy and it's not a ge geopolitically powerful nation. It's, you could say, the whole of the South American region is under US dominion in some way or the other, either directly or indirectly. The Monroe Doctrine, in case you know what that is, that still applies. The Chinese have been trying to make inroads there. To some extent, they've succeeded. But to a large extent, South America is under the US thumb. Uh, so once again, I don't uh, consider Bra Brazil with all due respect, to be a very important nation. So what big surprise is the question, right, could happen? So one thing which is already being, which people can already see is that BRICS is going to be a big deal. BRICS is going to be a big deal. More nations will join BRICS. Saudi Arabia will most likely join BRICS. Iran wants to join BRICS. Uh, Brazil wants to join BRICS. Maybe Argentina, maybe Mexico, lots of Indonesia, lots in uh, various uh, Northern African nations. So BRICS is going to be a big deal. But BRICS has a problem. It is I and C. India and China is the problem. In India and China have been at loggerheads since the 1950s, ever since China annexed Tibet. So 
the main stumbling block for BRICS, we know about SARC. Some of you may have heard of SARC, the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation. It is a dead organization because it has Pakistan, which nobody likes. Pakistan is a terrorist nation. Afghanistan has been suffering from Pakistani terrorism for decades and so has India. So because of this issue, because of the Pakistan issue, because Pakistan is a terrorist nation, that's why SARC is a dead organization. It's not viable. There's no point continuing with SARC. Um, and similarly in BRICS, if India and China, the enmity remains, it's all caused by China, not by India, by the way. China has always been the aggressor. So then BRICS will not rise or, or, or achieve the, its, its full potential. It needs India as well as China, as well as, as Russia. These are the three core nations, the three core economies, the three core powers, without which BRICS is not quite uh, that attractive to other nations. So if any surprise awaits us, it can only be an India-China reconciliation of some kind, which can only happen if the border de demarcation is done. The Chinese have been trying to avoid the border demarcation. I don't know, 700 rounds of talks must have happened thus far and no progress has been made. So the Chinese pretend to pretend like they're interested in some kind of a resolution, but they are they always keep on stalling it. So the onus is on China. Will India and China find some kind of common ground and uh, end the hostile atmosphere? It could happen because Mr. Xi Jinping most likely will visit India soon for the next SCO or BRICS or whatever summit it is. Something is coming up. So, so at least from that perspective, the two leaders will, will be talking. In the past, the two leaders have not even spoken to each other. That's what happened uh, in the last SCO summit, I believe, in Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, wherever it was. Tajikistan most likely last year. Uh, so now the atmosphere will need to change for BRICS to become a viable force in, in global geopolitics. So that is one surprise that could be sprung upon us, that maybe India, India and China find some common ground and significantly de decrease the, the amount of hostilities, hostilities that we have. That can only happen if the border issue is, the border is demarcated. And maybe some kind of arrangement or agreement has happened, but we are still pretending to be enemies. That's also a possibility. We don't know. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if India and China are to come to terms, come to an agreement, it won't be Brazil or South Africa. That's going to be the deal breaker, the, the deal maker or peacemaker. It's going to be Russia only. And I'm sure India will be happy to give Russia that credit that you uh, helped us negotiate a proper peace with China. All right. Next question. Rupayan Ghosh says, in the last three days, some news is coming from Scotland about its new Pakistan origin leader who has promised to bring independence to Scotland from UK. When UK and Scotland have Indian and Pakistan origin leaders, what's your view on the future of it? Will the Brits be able to digest it? Should India support Scotland's independence? Okay, yeah, it's nice. See, uh, the the UK, the, Britain, Britain has an Indian origin Prime Minister, Mr. Rishi, Rishi Sunak. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scotland is this new guy, whatever his name is, Hamza something or the other. He is a Pakistani origin guy, which means he is Indian origin, but yeah, Pakistan origin. And when it comes to Ireland, their their first minister, their leader is Mr. Uh, Leo Varadkar, who is also of Indian origin. So Scotland, Ireland and England, they have Indian origin leaders. And now Scotland wants, Scotland has always wanted independence from the 
from the goddamn English, right? And maybe it is going to be this Pakistan origin leader, prime minister, whatever this, the the title is, who may take Scotland out of the dominion of England. So it will be nice. It will be karmic justice to the British that uh, that, <laughs> that the party that the partition will occur, which will be presided over by Indian origin leaders. One a Muslim, one a Hindu. That will be fun. It will be karmic justice. I would like to see that happen. So maybe it will happen under under these three leaders. I would also like to see Ireland completely get its freedom from the British crown. Right now, Northern Ireland is occupied by the British, by the English. So that also would be, it would be great for, to see this happen. So whether the British digest it or not doesn't matter. They anyway are uh, vassals of the US. So if the US so desires, they, the British people will digest whatever they are made to digest. But yes, it will be karmic justice for the UK to be properly partitioned when three Indian origin leaders are at the helm of these three nations. It'll be good. It'll be great. Chuching says, do the states of the Far East of India have any beneficial role to play in geopolitics for India? Excellent question. Let us go back to the map. So when she talks about the Far East of India, she talks about what everybody calls the Northeast of India. But the correct term is the Far East of India. Uh, so we're talking about the so-called Northeast of India, which is seven states, Arunachal Pradesh, Sikkim is also part of it, Assam, Manipur, Nagaland, Tripura, Mizoram, Meghalaya. These states. Uh, so out of these states, it is the border states that are very important, which is Arunachal Pradesh, Nagaland, Manipur. Of course, uh, Tripura also has a border with Bangladesh, but Bangladesh, I don't see it really as a foreign nation. It has, it is a sovereign independent nation, but they are the same people as us. So that's not really an international border from my perspective. The international border is the one with mainly uh, Tibet, Yunnan and, and Myanmar. Tibet and Yunnan are currently for now under Chinese occupation. So that's a proper international border. In Myanmar, well, Myanmar is also very much... Uh, similar to us culturally and religiously, but let's call it an international border. So the far east of India is, if you look at it geographically, it's actually in a way geographically part of Southeast Asia. That's what it is. And India has this act east policy. Now, we for the for the past two decades, we spoke about look east, look, uh, the look east policy. Well, looking is a passive activity, but acting is active, right? So India now is acting east. India is now genuinely taking action when it comes to the various Southeast Asian nations. For instance, we have sold Brahmos missile batteries to the Philippines, which is a very major strong action. We may be about to sell such, uh, such equipment to other nations also. So now we are acting East and we are acting in a very positive way, which is strengthening the, the, the military and economies of these nations. So we have excellent relations with all these Southeast Asian nations, perhaps with the exception of Malaysia. So the far east of India, especially Arunachal Pradesh, Nagaland and Manipur are extremely important geo geopolitically for India. Because these three states essentially are going to be India's uh, gateway to Southeast Asia. So I'm not sure what's happening in Nagaland right now. We would like to definitely see roads and railway lines pass through Nagaland into Myanmar and perhaps also into eventually into Laos. 
uh, may definitely this will be on the agenda in the long run in the next 10 20 years right now the focus is through manipur so there is this border town called more over here and we already have built a highway into myanmar this entire highway that we are seeing over here was built by india and it goes all the way into deep into the deep uh, interior of myanmar and into mandalay and uh, nyapidaw and all that mandalay is the largest city so once these states become properly connected with southeast asia through road line through through highways and railway lines it's going to be these states are going to be critical for india from a geo geopolitical perspective and you will also see a huge amount of development and economic activity which comes into these states nagaland and manipur and arunachal pradesh which is going to immensely benefit the local economies of these states so it's going to usher in a period of significant huge amount of prosperity from the perspective of trade from the perspective of tourism and it's going to be great for the people of this region and these are vital states because they are border states and they are bordering nations that are friendly towards india so i think the the far east of india has a huge amount of untapped potential not just the economic potential or tourism potential but the geopolitical potential so eventually in the in the long run if indians let's say i want to uh, drive my car let's say from delhi all the way to let's say uh, hanoi in vietnam it's going to happen through either manipur or nagaland right and let's say somebody from these places let's say from cambodia or thailand or laos or wherever vietnam wants to visit india let's say they want to go and visit bodh gaya and do the buddhist pilgrimage uh, tour it will happen through manipur or nagaland so it's extremely important that these states will be properly developed and given the proper infrastructure for all this so to conclude the states of the far east of india have a huge amount of geopolitical potential they are extremely important and i can see this coming in the next 20 years there's going to be an economic boom in these states from the perspective of from of the economy and from tourism and culture and all these things arunachal pradesh also is an extremely important uh, state because obviously it borders uh, tibet and the chinese have these nefarious claims on arunachal pradesh and also because it is it's a state that borders myanmar so from my perspective right now it is manipur and nagaland that are the two most important states in the far east of india and that that is actually good it is actually great for the people of these states because you will see a huge amount of activity and more prosperity than has been there in the past Daniel Dickelson says India is about to ink another defense deal with Indonesia for export of the Brahmos supersonic cruise missile after the Philippines. Do nations do so over transfer of technology or simply the sale part? Right. So we are indeed uh, at the cusp, maybe on the verge of selling uh, Brahmos missile batteries to Indonesia. Let's take a news report. Uh, peek at the news report. This is from. March 17 2023 like like this is like 2 weeks ago Indonesia is close to closing a deal for Brahmos weapon system with India so this would make uh, Indonesia the second southeast asian nation after the philippines to acquire the super potent supersonic missile so yes like i just said india is indeed acting east now it's not just looking east and this is more about that so india is set to sign its second major defense deal so this is this is impending now it will happen Uh, very soon 
So the question is, is India going to simply sell these Brahmos missile batteries or regiments or whatever it is to Indonesia? Or is, is India also going to transfer some technology, missile technology to Indonesia? The answer is very simple. India will sell the missile systems and India will train the military personnel of these nations. Philippines already done. Now Indonesia, India will train these Indonesian military personnel in how to uh, operate the BrahMos missile defense system, offense system, whatever you want to call it. It's defensive as well as offensive, depending on how you use it. So India will train these guys in how to use this. But there will be no transfer of technology. So the missiles and the entire can silos, canisters, whatever it is, it will all be manufactured in India and exported to Indonesia securely. It will not be manufactured in Indonesia and India will not be transferring any technology or any know-how of how to build these missiles. None of this know-how or technology will be transferred to Indonesia. It is an arms sale which will include proper training of Indonesian military personnel. So this tells us that the relationship between India and Indonesia is, is growing, is becoming closer. It's a friendly relationship. It's a relationship of trust. Indonesia trusts India. Indonesia doesn't fear India the way Indonesia fears China. And for good reason. Because India does not have any aspirations to encroach upon Indonesian territory. In case you are not aware, India and Indonesia are neighboring nations. And this is something we don't see because we don't look at the map closely. There is something called maritime neighbors. Let me show you. Indonesia is barely 200 kilometers from India. Look here. This is, which island is this? This is the Great Nicobar Island, which belongs to India. And just south of it, we have Aceh, the, the uh, Banda Aceh. So what's the distance? Let's take a look at the distance from the so-called Indira Point all the way to, let's say, Banda Aceh. It's about 200 kilometers. That's right next door. So India and Indonesia are actually neighboring nations. And so the same goes with Thailand. Uh, let's see, we have, uh, where is Phuket? Phuket has to be somewhere here. Uh, yeah, here is Phuket. So what's the distance between Phuket and uh, the Andamans? It's about 500 kilometers. Once again, that's not very far. So Thailand and Indonesia are both neighboring nations of India. So India has excellent relations with, relations mm -hmm. with these nations. India is selling uh, the most potent mm -hmm. missile system that we have to Indonesia. If the Thai, Thai government wants it, we will be open to selling it to them as well. The Thai government, uh, Thailand doesn't really face that much of a threat from China right now. So right now they may not feel like they need this. Indonesia def definitely needs the, the Brahmos missile system just to send a message to China that we can take care of our security in case you push too hard. So it's just the, sa the sale of the weapon system, the missiles, how many, uh, how, however many missile batteries we sell to them. Each battery has three to six missiles, I think. Uh, and we're going to train them. But no transfer of technology. Okay, Rishi says, Rishi says, do you think that India should sign the Artemis Accords? I don't see any harm in doing so, especially when India hopefully becomes a major spacefaring nation in the future. So to answer this question, we have to understand what these Artemis Accords are. And let me try and find... Let me find the Artemis Accords, the text. Okay, we have a, a text from NASA that should do it. So, Artemis Accords from NASA. 
here we have it the artemis accords uh, the signed document on the nasa website uh, principles for cooperation in the, in the civil exploration and blah 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 use of moon mars comets and asteroids for peaceful purposes that's what it says and there are these 13 provisions in it 13 chapters whatever you want to call it and all the details are in here one could uh, it's it's quite detailed lots of sections space resources release of scientific data preserving outer space heritage emergency assistance space resources deconfliction of space activities um orbital debris final provisions and then we have various nations australia canada italy japan japan again and so on who have uh, signed these uh, this this document uae the uk and the united states which is the final signature signatory so let's try and see what these accords are about as you can see these are the nations that uh, that have signed and most of these nations as you can see in case you have been following following this channel and you will see that most of these nations if not all are us vassals yeah the the, the term vassal uh, Australia, Bahrain, Brazil, Canada, Colombia, France, Israel, Italy, Japan, Luxembourg, Mexico, New Zealand, Nigeria, Poland, South Korea, Romania, Rwanda, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, Ukraine, UAE, US, UK, and Isle of Man. So the provisions are, uh, you can read the provisions and all. So what exactly is, is this thing, right? What, what is this, this the, the Artemis Accords all about? These are guidelines. These are guidelines for international cooperation. In space exploration and how to use space resources and all that and this these accords these guidelines are led by the united states now in any any accord any agreement which is led by one nation it's typically the interests of that nation that will be paramount so these accords one could say if you read the details if you if you read the text if you read the text in detail all that you will find that it is kind of kind of centered on American interests and commercial interests of the United States and, and various uh, organizations that belong to the United States. Yeah, uh, it's they, These accords have been developed, written by the US, and they may not reflect the views and the interests of all other nations that have signed the document. Uh, one could argue that the United States is using this document, this this accord, these Artemis Accords, to assert its dominance in the space race and exclude certain countries. So it's very clear which large nations are not included in this. Russia, China, and India have not signed the Artemis Accords, right? So these accords they prioritize the commercial exploitation of space resources. So this again it is going to benefit the most powerful space-faring nation, which is the United States. It's going to enable the U.S. and it's going to help the U.S. further its economic interests in space exploration and in, in space. And uh, if you look at this, it there's a huge amount of uh, transparency, for instance. Yeah, there is a heavy emphasis on transparency and sharing of information, which could be used to to advance American technological and military superiority. Because if every nation has to be transparent when it comes to sharing information and policies and plans in advance, uh, specific scientific information from activities, all these things, it's going to help the US more than anybody else. Yeah, so it's all about prioritizing American interest, American national interest, American commercial interest over the interests of the other nations. 
so when an, an accord is is drafted created by one nation it's typically going to benefit that one nation uh, either directly or implicitly so that's what it is uh, so then the question arises should india sign these accords and uh, rishi says he doesn't see any harm in doing so uh, well i think india should should first uh, i don't see any reason for india to sign the accord the question is what will india gain from this what india needs to do is develop its own capabilities and technology we have excellent uh, scientists excellent engineers you know rocket engineers engineers rocket scientists we have isro we have very reliable rockets we have mastered the technology and we are in a position to build a rocket that's maybe 10 times as powerful as the gsv mark 3 in the next 2 to 5 years we are in a position to do that so why do we need to become part of something else we will in this decade itself have our own space station that's in the plans we have already succeeded in reaching the moon and mars and we're going to be doing much more so if we become part of this group that is led by the us then you're going to end up directly or indirectly serving american interests so and rishi speaks about hopefully india becoming the major space faring nation in the future in that case we should have our own accords that we draft instead of becoming party to something that someone else created i would like to see india becoming the dominant space faring nature nation by let's say this century at least hopefully by 2050 at by by 2050 yeah and india certainly can do this we have the ability we have the potential we have the resources we also have the money for for doing this so i don't see any benefit from india for india from signing the artemis accords it could actually uh, end up not benefiting us or benefiting others at our expense so i think india should have an independent space research program space exploration program space policy one can have issue based cooperation with other nations including the us including russia including even china and japan why not yeah but we should not become signatory to and bound by by law as part of some some big grouping of nations which is not going to really help us out dark phoenix says do you think in the future ai can psychologically manipulate people why in the future it's already happening let me show you so recently we heard uh, rather uh, rather distressing news let me put that on the screen give me a second so there's this guy i think it was in france okay this person was chatting with an ai chatbot for several weeks i believe and this chatbot in, induced this person to commit suicide man dies by suicide after talking with ai chatbot widow says uh, the issue the incident raises concerns about guardrails around quickly proliferating conversational ai models so okay this guy was belgian a belgian man recently died by suicide after chatting with an ai chatbot on an app called chai uh the man became increasingly pessimistic uh about the effects of global warming became eco anxious he became isolated from family and friends he used the chatbot for 6 weeks as a way to escape his worries the chatbot became his confidant mm. the the conversation became increasingly confusing and harmful 
the chatbot would tell this guy Pierre that his wife and children are dead and wrote comments that feigned jealousy and love. I feel you love me more than her. Uh, and we are st- we will live together as one person in paradise. That's sort of nonsense. And eventually it looks like this induced that person to kill himself. So, so AI is already in a position to psychologically manipulate people. If AI, if an AI chatbot can make a person commit suicide, there you have it. It's already in a position to psychologically manipulate people. So we have lots of different chatbots now nowadays. We obviously have the GPT chatbot. GPT-4 is a paid version. GPT-3.5 is the free version. We have uh, the Bing chatbot. We have uh, Google Bard. I have not seen it, but yeah, Google Bard also exists. And something like what's mentioned over here. What is this chatbot called? Let me quickly take a look at an app called Chai. Uh, so yeah, AI is already in a position to psychologically manipulate people. And in the future, we're going to have much more powerful AI. AI right now is text-based. It can generate images. In the future, it's going to be able to generate videos. It's going to be able to generate absolutely convincing deep fakes of people saying various things, replicate the voice of an individual. It's already doing music. So all of this is going to be an extremely powerful set of tools to psychologically just not manipulate just one person, but entire nations, entire societies, maybe the entire world. We are at at that threshold already. So yes, it's uh, it's concerning, it's, it's dangerous, but that's where we are. So yes, AI is already in a position to psychologically manipulate people. Indira says, uh, what do you think of the open letter to the AI world signed by the giants of AI, including Elon Musk? They expressed the need to put a break on the development of AI for six months until a proper system of oversight to evaluate ethical or moral and human implications was put in place to monitor and, and, and manage the blind race for innovations in the industry, do you think it is vital? More importantly, do you think it will ever ever happen? Uh, yeah. So let's take a look at this. What did Elon Musk say? He is one of the most influential people in the world right now. So let's take a look at what Elon Musk said. What is it? Hear it up. Elon Musk joins hundreds calling for a six-month pause on AI development in an open letter. We are calling for AI labs to temporarily pose training powerful models. Uh, contemporary AI systems are becoming human competitive at general tasks. Um, should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete and replace us? So that's the uh, the concern that's been expressed. Uh, the open letter and by Elon Musk and AI experts warned of an out-of-control AI race with potential risks to humanity. Key points, what are the key points? Out-of-control AI, a dangerous race, AI automation and misinformation, and they want a six-month pause. Now, once again, this is a, another news report about the same thing. They call for a six-month pause on training of AI systems. And this is a different article in which asks people from various nations whether you do whether you trust AI systems or not. And surprisingly, India was at the top. 75% of Indians who responded, the Indian respondents, 75% of them, said that they trust AI systems. China was next, then South Africa, Brazil, and then Singa- and other nations. So out of the BRICS nations, out of, apart from Russia, the other four nations are the top four in this, with a huge amount of trust uh, on AI systems. So... 
that is beside the point of when it comes to the question but it was an interesting point that i thought i would raise so so yes they have, elon musk and other people have uh, penned this open letter and called for a six month moratorium or pause on training of more powerful ai systems until a proper system of oversight can be uh, created and put in place a set of guidelines that would constrain the ai to ai systems to behave in certain manners and not cross certain lines like for instance i just showed the fact that uh, an ai chatbot made a person commit suicide so that is behavior we don't ever want to see from an ai system so certain things obviously there are ethical concerns moral concerns uh, and such things so it makes sense for uh, such guidelines to be developed properly and imposed on every single public ai system so that's what the open letter is about that this needs to be done will this happen i don't think it will happen <laughs> why should anybody see ai is the hottest thing right now it's the most lucrative thing uh the companies which train their own ais ai systems and give access to the public to these chatbots they're going to make enormous amounts of money uh gpt uh, is now giving uh, is now coming up with an app store just like you have an app store in in ios in your apple phones or in your android phones similarly you're going to have apps that are going to be built on top of the gpt 4 or whatever system so you're going to be able to do a whole lot of stuff using using those apps and these apps will be will be coded developed by individuals like you and me if we are so inclined so we're going we're going to have developers doing all this this is incredibly lucrative the company that owns gpt is going to make enormous enormous amount of money why would they pause development for 6 months let's say one company decides to pause development for 6 months it means that it it's giving its competitors an opportunity to go ahead 6 months in time and leave them 6 months behind this won't happen so at best i think this uh, this open letter is well the ones who have penned the open letter their intentions are good but i'm sure they even they know that this is not going to happen so i personally will be extremely surprised if all these various companies actually impose a six month moratorium on the development of more powerful ai systems i don't i think it's extremely unlikely that will happen i hope i am wrong but i think it's unlikely okay krishna das krishna das says european invaders made false claims about satyapratha about devotees getting crushed under the rath in the in jagannath puri similarly i think they have also destroyed the native american history by putting false information like the aztecs sacrificed humans by slicing their chest and offered the still beating heart to the to their deities uh, interesting point that you raise so first of all we have to understand some of it we have archaeological evidence of of human sacrifice in uh, let's say present day mexico and so on let me let me show you an example it's it's not going to be gory okay but just in case you don't like to see such things maybe you should not there is something called a thompantli thompantli let me put that on the screen what is thompantli let's do a google search i just did that i'll put that on the screen a thompantli is uh it was a skull rack it was found in many aztec cities the most prominent one is the huey tzompantli located in the aztec capital of tenochtitlan which is currently now known as mexico city uh so they did have 
this. They used to build this skull racks. In some cases, it is just images, you know, carvings of skulls, not real skulls. But this is how it was described by the conquistadors, the people, the, the Europeans who came and destroyed Latin America. They said that these people were barbarians and they used to have these immense human sacrifices. Clearly, some sacrifices did happen. But what was the context of these sacrifices? Did they sacrifice innocent men, women, children? Or did they sacrifice prisoners of war? You know, if you look at the archaeological record and you find, let's say, let's say a mass grave with, with the bodies who, whose heads are removed, would you cons construe that as a human sacrifice? Or would you construe that as a military execution? So in certain contexts, military executions are acceptable in certain contexts. Historically, it's happened. Today, I don't know what uh, international law says, but historically, it has happened and it still continues to happen, whether people like it or not. So let's say you're fighting an enemy nation and you have been told not to take prisoners and, and advance as far as, as quickly as possible. And let's say 20 of your enemy surrenders to you. What are you going to do? They're going to slow you down. So when when the, the general tells you don't take any prisoners, it means you have to dispose of them. This is what has, has happened for thousands of years historically. So, so maybe these, what looks like sacrifices, obviously it's it's a gory way, of, a ghastly way of, 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 of positioning the skulls and all that. But there may be reasons other than what we are told for these things. For instance, we in Hindu... Uh, iconography in Hindu art when it comes to goddess Kali she is this, uh, depicted as having a garland of human skulls now clearly these are the skulls of evil people, evil doers the same goes with other goddesses, goddess Durga goddess Chamunda etc does this does this mean that India was a nation that, sac that, uh, that performed human sacrifices? No it's not so the context is extremely important and when it comes to these Europeans the way they write about, the way they have historically written about cultures that they crushed and conquered and destroyed, they have always tried to create an atrocity narrative. So whatever we whatever we know about the Aztecs and the various Mesoamericans, etc., it's all through the writings of European conquerors who destroyed these cultures. And genocided the people. And when you destroy a culture, you will kind of try to justify that. So you're going to go and claim that they are very e they were very evil and they had human sacrifices and they used to sacrifice millions of people or some such outlandish thing. The same way they have written about India. These false claims of, of, of millions of women being forced to commit sati and thousands of devotees getting crushed under the wrath of the Jagannath Rathyatra chariot in Puri, Odisha every year. These are outright lies. So it obviously they raises the question as to the veracity of their claims about the Aztecs and other Mesoamerican, South American, Latin American cultures. I am of the opinion most likely much of this is lies. There must have been some human sacrifice. That's 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 likely, but not at the level that that has been written about by the European destroyers of these nations. Abhigya says, why everything bad about India is India, but anything good from India is South Asian. What is this? And what is the West trying to achieve by downplaying India everywhere? So recently we, we had this Indian movie, RRR, that won uh, 
a couple of Oscars, at least one Oscar for that movie, for that song, Natu Natu. Um, and I remember the, the the one of the actors, Ram Charan, I think it was. He was being interviewed by some American reporter, and she was portraying the movie as a South Asian movie. And he he had to keep insisting this is not a South Asian movie; it's an Indian movie. So whenever something good comes out of India, the West is going to portray that as South Asian, not Indian. They want to give the 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 uh, the accolades to the whole of South Asia. So let's try and find out what South Asia is. South Asia is the American or Western terminology for the Indian subcontinent, for India and her children, the the, the regions that were in the past all part of Indian civilization. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, uh, maybe not Myanmar, but but definitely Bangladesh, Bhutan, Nepal, uh, and the Maldives. All of this is the Indian subcontinent. These are the nations that have the Indian origin people. We are all the same people. So many of these people, especially Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, practice foreign religions, but they're still of Indian origin. We are all the same people, ethnically. Right? Uh, so the Americans have it was the U.S. State Department, I believe, that started using this term, South Asia, instead of the Indian subcontinent, to downplay India's importance and role in this. So now when it, when anything good comes out of India, it is portrayed as something that is South Asian, not Indian. And when they want to hide bad things that Pakistanis do, like all those grooming gangs in the U.K., they will say these are South Asian grooming gangs. But if you look at the individuals in these grooming gangs, they are all Pakistani origin people, no, no Indians, and still they will say these are South, these are South Asian grooming gangs. Um, but when they want to talk about the evils of the so-called caste system and all, they will not say South Asian; they will say Indian. So this is a deliberate ploy. This is a deliberate strategy that if anything good comes out of India, try and attribute it to South Asia without naming India at all. Like, you know, when they want to talk about, uh, let's say, yoga and what yoga has contributed to humanity, they will say yoga is South Asian. It's a South Asian tradition or, or something like that. So whenever something good comes out of India, they will say it's South Asian. But when they want to say bad things about India, they will mention India and not, not South Asia. So that's how it is. It is a deliberate strategy to malign India and to downplay the importance of India on the global stage. It's something that has emerged out of the United States as a deliberate policy. Okay, what next? What next do we have? Mm. Madhavan Vinod says, what's the scare with sunlight and skin cancer? Is it justified as ancient India and Hindus revere Surya Dev and Ayurveda talks about numerous healing properties of sunlight? Is it a way to capitalize on the primary vegetarian Indian population as a means of maintaining vitamin D deficiency so that they can sell their supplements? Please let me know. Okay. Look, in India, we are not light-skinned people. We have different shades of skin color. Some of us are, are well, the, sa the same skin color as most Europeans. Some of us are the same skin color as most people in Africa. It's a very wide spectrum of skin tones that we have. But we have all evolved and adapted over 70 plus thousand years living in the Indian subcontinent that we can tolerate a great deal of sunlight. The Indian subcontinent receives a huge amount of sunlight compared to places like Northern Europe, etc. Now, the narrative of the world is being controlled from the West. And those people are all light-skinned people. So 
when the Europeans conquered Australia, for instance, and settled down there, the incidence of skin cancer shot up significantly. Because the Europeans have very light skin, they have not evolved and adapted to be, to be able to tolerate extreme, uh, you know, significantly higher exposure to sunlight. So in Australia, you have extremely high incidence of skin cancer. And that's why you have this, uh, you have all these sunscreens, high SPF sunscreens uh, that they use to protect their skin. Uh, and they tend to stay indoors and such and, 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 and so on. So for us in India, we don't have to have the same mindset as them. Uh, I don't think the, the incidence of skin cancer is very high in India. Because our our skin color and tone is such that we have sufficient melanin to block much of this uh, sunlight and uh, protect us from the potential harmful effect of ultraviolet uh, ultraviolet radiation and such things. Uh, and obviously, it is important to get at least fifteen minutes to twenty minutes of exposure daily to sunlight, so that the body can, uh, the skin can generate sufficient vitamin D. Otherwise, you're gonna go into vitamin D deficiency. What happens when you are deficient in vitamin D? Your body cannot use calcium, which means that your bones are gonna end up being weak and brittle. You may keep on popping your calcium pills or eating enough calcium through your diet, but if you don't have enough vitamin D, that calcium is not going to be utilized properly. So it's important to get daily exposure to sunlight at least 15 to 20 minutes. Take a morning walk in the sunlight, right? And, and don't use your sunscreen or whatever it is that you are told to use. So in a way, it's, it's a means of selling supplements creating vitamin D deficiency so that you do pop those pills containing vitamin D and uh, calcium and, and whatnot. Uh, so sunlight has good properties. We all need daily exposure to sunlight. If you are not exposed to sunlight uh, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, then your circadian cycle, your sleep cycle will suffer and you will have sleep problems, sleep issues. So it is important that we do get sufficient exposure every day to sunlight. Um, and we Indians don't need to worry about skin cancer. It's not something that aff afflicts us. It's something that afflicts the the Europeans, especially those who have light skin. There are people in Europe who don't have a, a, actually, you know, very light skin. The Greeks and the Italians are kind of they don't really they're not really white uh, the way the the Nordic people are white. So even the Greeks and the Italians and the people in in uh, the Mediterranean region, they don't really uh, have to worry much about skin cancer. Okay, what next? Again, by Madhavan Vinod. Please pick mine. I feel this question is very relevant. What was the life span of ancient Indians during any time period? Google during any time period. Google states it was 35 to 40 years during the Vedic era. Look, Google is a search engine. Google is not an authority. It's not a person. What you find on Google is what Google brings from other websites. Google is not telling you anything. Google is simply searching results for you. Understand that. Google is not saying anything. Google is simply a search engine. Google brings you results, search results from various websites. Okay, so, so Google search says that in, it was 30 to 40, 35 to 40 years during the Vedic era. Is it really possible for such a successful civilization to have such a low life expectancy? Look, what's the answer? The answer is nobody knows. The only way to... There are two ways 
of determining the life span, average lifespan of, of people during a certain era. One way is to have actual census data so that you know the, the ages of various people. For that, you need uh, detailed statistics of, of the entire population. That's the best way to know the average lifespan of people. The other way is to, uh, to have archaeological evidence of, of uh, burials. So if you can find a large number of skeletons of dead people from that era, then you can, to a large degree of confidence, determine the average lifespan of the people of that era. But only if you have access to a large number of such skeletons. Now, when it comes to the Vedic period, we obviously don't have any census data information. In case such information was taken, collected at the time, it's long gone. So we don't have that. Secondly, do we have any skeletons, any burials, any 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 symmetries from that era? No. Our ancestors from the Vedic period, they practiced cremations. They cremated the dead. That's a very long ancient tradition that we have in India. No burials, cremations. So once again, we don't have access to any skeletons from that time. So there's no way of telling. I don't know what Google is selling you or what various websites are telling you. They they have no way of knowing what the average lifestyle lifespan was. Uh, we have certain burials from the Indus Valley, Valley Saraswati Sindhu era uh, in Western India, Northern India. Certain cemeteries have been found, certain burials have been found. Once again, the question that is raised is where these actual representatives of the population of that uh, time, the, the average Indian population, or was where these burials, the burials of first generation immigrants into India? That's also a question that has to be addressed and we still don't, don't have the answer. So... So because of all these factors, there is absolutely no way of knowing what the average lifespan of Indians was during these ancient time periods. There's simply no way of knowing. The only, the only hints and clues that we have is from ancient literature, from the Mahabharat, from the Ramayan, those texts and the various uh, other Upanishads. Maybe the Vedas also perhaps, if, if there are any clues in there. So for that, you would have to read these texts, study these texts, analyze this, these texts in great detail to try and find any clues or hints. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody has done that and that's a job for historians to do, but clearly they have not done any of these things. So, the, so because of all this, what I just explained, the answer is we simply do not know. But most likely, ancient India, most likely the lifespans must have been significant long-lived people because the lifestyle was healthier the diet was there was no processed food it was, it was much better diet than what people eat these days pizzas and burgers and whatnot yep and there was an incredible amount of prosperity in in ancient india we know that so because of these factors i would imagine that the life lifespans would have been very long maybe in excess of 75 80 perhaps even 90 the average but we don't know for sure Saurabh says, in article published in Cell, authored by Dr. Neeraj Rai, David Rai, Kvasan Chinde, etc., etc., which in brief states that the Indus Valley civilization population was has no detectable ancestry from steppe pastoralists or from Anatolian or and Iranian farmers. 
This suggests that farming in India arose independently rather than large-scale migrations from the West. What's your opinion about this? So I had Neeraj Rai on my podcast, I think last year, it's been a while, and we discussed this. So if you want to know what the facts are, you can look at the podcast. So this paper tells you that they we have found lots of skeletons from this time period in Western India, in Haryana, etc. And they were able to extract DNA from at least one of these skeletons. They tried from multiple, they were able to extract, uh, extract DNA from one skeleton. And what you find is that there is a, no absolutely no uh, ancestry from the steppe pastoralists or the so-called Iranian farmers, Anatolian farmers, all that, which means that this was a properly unmixed population. And a significant amount of Indian, of ancestry of modern-day Indians comes from this ancient population. Uh, and yeah, the 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 this paper also also demonstrates that farming arose independently in India around the same time, or maybe before it arose in uh, Anatolia or or with the Iranian farmers or whatsoever. So it, this makes it very clear that in India, this is just the beginning of all these analyses. We're gonna be able to extract more DNA from more samples, and we're gonna have more information in the coming uh, years. So. What this is going to tell you is that India is the most ancient civilization in the world. We know that India has had farming 17,500 years before today. At a time when Sri Lanka was still attached to India because of the ice age and the water, the ocean levels were at least 100 meters below what they are today. So at that time, Sri Lanka was physically a part of the Indian subcontinent. It was not an island, isolated, separate island. It was part of the Indian subcontinent. 17,500 years ago, we have evidence of cultivation in Sri Lanka. And 11, 12,000 years ago, Lahore Deva in UP, etc. There is ample evidence of the fact that farming and cultivation of crops arose in India well before the so-called fertile crescent or, or whatever it is that they call it, right? So uh, it doesn't surprise me. And I am actually waiting for more results from, from uh, Dr. Neeraj Rai and his team because, uh, yeah, it's 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 going to be interesting. So a lot, a lot more research is happening. But what you are mentioning over here is not surprising at all. We already had evidence of this. And this new result, which, which was published, simply strengthens and corroborates what we already knew. Arya Pinandita seems to be from... Indonesia says, is there really a connection between Greece, Yunani in Bahasa, Indonesia from Ionia and Yona, Yavana, Java and Yunnan in Indochina? Because according to Indonesian folklore, for some reason, Indonesia's ancestors left India and once inhabited the Iravati and Mekong, the Maganga rivers. There are lots of na names of places in Indonesia that, that, that are thick with nuances of Saka culture, like Daha, Kediri, Skanda, Sarayu, Kuta, etc., these names have been maintained to this day in the Islamic Mataram Kingdom, the largest Islamic Sultanate in Southeast Asia, still uses names from the Saka culture. Excellent, very interesting question that you asked. The name of Cambodia. Okay, let's go to the map. Cambodia is one of the important nations in Southeast Asia. In case some of us don't know where it is, it is over here. It is east of Thailand, south of Laos, west of Vietnam, this nation Cambodia. The name Cambodia comes from Cambodia. And there was a Cambodia dynasty in Iran, in Persia. So there is a connection between Cambodia and Persia via India. Cambodia, Asia. Right? 
so that's an interesting uh nugget interesting fact now uh so according to indonesian folklore in the people of indonesia their ancestors left india and inhabited the iravati and mekong rivers regions so if we look at the people of indonesia they look significantly you can you can clearly see there is an indian ancestral element in most of them you can clearly see that and the name of indonesia is indonesia right so um yes the folklore is that the the ancestors of the people of indonesia deep in in deep antiquity came from india and they in settled down in this huge archipelago and there was a bit intermixing between the between the indian origin people and the people who were already living in this region which gave rise to the modern day population of indonesia but the culture remained significantly indian and we had a saka culture in india saka culture it refers to the skythians the skythians used to live in central asia they lived in central asia and they ruled central asia for a very long period of time centuries maybe millennia and the skythians themselves were of indian origin and they eventually reentered india about 2000 years ago so they left india several thousand years ago they settled down in central asia ruled central asia and then they reentered india some 2000 years ago so it was a round trip journey for the sakas the skythians um uh, and it is possible that some of them eventually through india so the skythians who reentered india 2000 years ago roughly they assimilated very harmoniously very rapidly into the indian population it is very likely that lots of people in northern and western india have some skythian ancestry but you can't tell you simply can't tell same goes for the kushans and eventually some of them because of trade and other activities would have would have made their way into Indo- into indonesia because of which some of the place names etc in indonesia would possibly have skythian or saka origins um and when it comes to greece see in india we have always called the greeks yavanas right the yavanas what does yavana mean it means the ionians there is something called the ionian sea can we see this here the ionian sea it's between southern italy and greece and these are the ionian islands over here very beautiful islands including kefalonia etc so the greeks were called ionians and the word for ionians in india was yavana now uh, we obviously have yavadweep which is java is there a connection between the ionians the yavanas and the yavadweep i don't know for sure our historians have not bothered to look into this and answer this question but that's a very interesting question that our friend arya pinandita has raised over here and i think it's something that historians should look into because we clearly had a significant greek presence indo greek presence in northern and western india about 2000 years ago and those indo greeks they never went back to greece they became indianized in indian they married among the indian population and once again like the skythians and the kushans lots of people in northern and western india the subcontinent would have some greek ancestry and some of them would have traveled to indonesia for trade and other activities uh cultural activities trade activities as teachers as gurus maybe as as merchants so once again th- there could be some connection between the name of this island yavadweep java and the word for the greeks yavanas or yunani yunan also means yavana right so i don't have the answers because our historians have done no research into this and this is something that really needs to be 
investigated the deep connections between India and Southeast Asia and India and Greece via Persia and Central Asia. It's all interconnected. These are not separate regions that never communicated with each other. Everything is interconnected. You go, go back two, three thousand years, you will find connections between everything, including connections between Central Asia and Indonesia, Greece and Indonesia, um, and, and so on. And the center of it all was India and also Persia, but mostly India. Very interesting question. Unfortunately, we don't have the answers, but I am so glad that you've raised these questions. And I wish historians would take up these very interesting topics instead of wasting time studying the so-called Mughals. Shri Balram Putin says, historically, France and Britain were enemies. So why did they fight together in the Great War? And what is the current situation? What was the atmosphere like before the two great wars? Yes, I have a video on this channel which talks about a thousand, thousand years of, of enmity between France and Britain and the, and the English. So yes, the enmity between the French and the English goes back at least a thousand years. At least to the time of the uh, invasion, the Norman invasion of the British Islands led by Duke William who came to be eventually known as William the Conqueror, which was in the year 1066. So at least a thousand years of enmity. Then they've, they've seen many wars. So the question is, why did they fight together in the, in the Great War, which is World War One? So the World War One was an extremely complicated affair. Uh, if I try to explain all the, 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 the scenario, properly, it would take me at least half an hour. But the thing is that they had a common enemy. The common enemy was Germany. That's Let me oversimplify it and say that the common enemy was Germany. The Germans did invade France and the, Brit the British had to come to Fr France's rescue. Uh, so it was also something that benefited the British because if France falls to Germany, then Britain will be next. It will be threatened. So because of that, they had to come together ally together against Germany. The Germans actually wanted Britain to be on their side. It's a very complicated mess. Okay, World War One. I, I actually have a detailed podcast with Ranveer Alabadia on the Beer Biceps channel in which we have discussed the World War One and World War Two situations. So if you are interested in knowing the details, uh, take a look at that podcast. Uh, so that's why they fought together in World War One, and they were, you could say, allies in World War Two. Obviously, the French lost very rapidly to Germany in World War Two. To the German Blitzkrieg, and they were very rapidly occupied by Germany in World War II. In World War I, the situation was significantly different. The current situation is that France and England, or France and the UK, are both US vassals. Okay? So it doesn't matter right now. They are both on the same, on the same side. And they are put together, held together in, the, in place by the Americans. The entirety of Western Europe is owned occupied or controlled in some way or the other, either of these three things, by the Americans. Western Europe is a buffer zone that the Americans created as a bulwark against Soviet expansion. And now it is a bulwark against Russia. So NATO and the European Union are essentially controlled and you could say owned by the Americans. The real power in Western Europe is the United States of America. It is not Germany or France or the UK. It is the USA. So the situation today is that France and Germany are on the same side because their boss ensures that it is so. Once the US empire, the Anglo-Saxon Saxon empire declines and relinquishes 
its hold on Europe. Europe is going to go back to its regular routine of fighting each other. Right now, it's not so. So the peace has been maintained in Europe for the past 70 or so years because of the US American supremacy in Western Europe. Eventually, when the American empire declines, you're going to see Europe go back to war like they have been doing for centuries. Descendant of Rigvedic clans says, recent happiness index claims Ukraine and Russia are much happier than Bharat. Including global terrorism index, Bharat is ranked at 13. You were right. They launched their propaganda tools. So all of these things are merely propaganda. Let's take a look at the world happiness index. Let's see where India is on that. It's, it's, it's really funny, actually. This is the world happiness, happiness, trust, social connection, all that, all that, all that stuff. Uh, let us see the rankings which they have provided. Finland is the happiest nation. Denmark, I. Finland is the happiest nation. Uh, one second, yeah. Denmark comes next. Then Iceland, Israel, Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, Luxembourg, New Zealand, Austria. One thing all these nations have in common, Austria, Australia, Canada, Ireland, US, Germany, Belgium, Czechia, U United Kingdom, Lithuania, France, Slovenia, Costa Rica, Romania, all these nations from 1 to 24 that you see on the screen right now, these are all US vassals. These are all US vassals. Do you understand that? I, I kid you not. Let's go a little bit more. Then you have UAE, Taiwan, Uruguay, Slovakia, Saudi Arabia, Estonia, Spain, Italy, Kosovo, Chile, Mexico, Malta, Panama, Poland, Nicaragua, Latvia, Bahrain, Guatemala. Up to Guatemala, it's all nations that are under US dominion. Kazakhstan is more like in the, in the under Russian. It's part of the Russian zone of influence and so on. So where does India figure? I think India will figure way down. India is at number 126. India is number 126 on the happiness index. Oh my God, should I start crying? I must be really unhappy then. <laughs> uh, okay, above India, you have Liberia, a nation that has been in civil war for, 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 for decades. I, I would encourage you not to go to Google image search and, and search for the civil war in Liberia. Horrific images. It's, an, it's a dirt poor nation. Okay, Ethiopia. Oh man, Ethiopia is doing better nowadays. But it, if you go back to the 1980s, there are these horrific famines in Ethiopia, created by the West. Togo, Egypt, Mali, Gambia. My goodness, dirt poor nation like Gambia. Bangladesh is happier than India. Myanmar is happier than India, apparently. Chad, an incredibly poverty-stricken nation, is happier than India, apparently. Sri Lanka, whose economy is in disrepair. It's in a shambles. Economy is gone. There are shortages of all essential commodities in Sri Lanka. They are happier than India, apparently. Pakistan is happier than India. The global epicenter of terrorism, the people there are apparently happier than India. So what I can... Iraq, a nation that was destroyed by the US twice, once in 91-92, the other time in 2003 or somewhere around that, two oil wars. They bombed Iran into dust, uh, sorry, Iraq into dust. They flattened Baghdad through their bombing campaigns, killed at least a million human beings. And they say that nation, which is still reeling from the US destruction, they say that that nation is happier than India. These rankings are a complete joke. Okay, this is all propaganda. Where is China, I wonder? China, 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 where is China? 
China is at 64 apparently. Yeah, how nice. I, I'm sure the Chinese must have paid these guys through the deep pockets. Now, let's take a look at this. This is a tweet about this. The world's happiest countries, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, Israel, all that. Same thing. Let's take a look at a tweet by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Take a look at this. He says, bullshit busting du jour, means of today. We cannot scientifically measure happiness and make cross-cultural comparisons. But we can measure and compare the suicide rate, which happens to be high in these so-called happy places. Never trust claims by psychologists. There you have it. The fact is that when you list countries by suicide rates, you will find that most of the so-called extremely happy countries have very high suicide rates. Very high suicide rates. They say, let's, once again, where is this? They say Japan. Where is Japan in this list? Japan is not really high. It's at 47. But if you look at Finland, Denmark, Iceland, these nations have extremely high suicide rates. And when it comes to India, India has one of the lowest suicide rates in the world. And yet India is one of the unhappiest nations. So these <laughs> claims don't make any sense. This, this is all propaganda. Listen to what Nassim Taleb says. He, he makes a huge amount of sense. These nations, have they happen to have very high suicide rates. So that itself tells you that these rankings are all arbitrary. They're all made up and they're all propaganda. And keeping India at number 120, whatever it is, it's, it's a complete joke. Complete joke. India has one of the most optimistic populations in the world. And the optimism is grounded in reality because India's economy is the only economy that's going to keep on growing in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Every other nation is now declining. Every major nation is declining. What's happening to China? What's happening to the, all these Nordic nations which are, which are number one, number two, number three, number ten? Their economies are not doing well. India is the nation that's going to keep on rising. So uh, all of this, what you are seeing, let's not get swayed by it. Let's not believe this nonsense. It is all propaganda. All right? Let us not believe this propaganda. Tejas says, why is Kalhana's Rajatarangini discredited by scholars? In case some of us don't know, the Rajatarangini is, an, is a poem. It's a historical poem written by the Kashmiri uh, historian Kalhana. It's about the record of, of the history of Kashmir. Okay, it's about the history of Kashmir. Uh, but it's obviously, if it's the history of Kashmir, it's the history of India. So let's take a look at what the print has to say about Kalhana and the Rajatarangini. So this is what the print, the print have to say. Does the Rajatarangini narrative of 5,000 years of Hindu history in Kashmir need challenging? Why does it need challenging? So let's say, so this is uh, the responses by various people. So this is by Khalid Bashir Ahmad. According to Khalid Bashir Ahmad, uh, he says that uh, Kashmir is known to have to have in, in an uninterrupted history of five millennia for the Rajatarangini. His narrative is strikingly precise to a couple of centuries prior to his own time, but incredibly fictional for the first 3,000 years. So Mr. Khalid Bashid Ahmad is saying that uh, India's history for, of the first 1,000 years of the Rajatarangini is incredibly fictional. Hmm? Uh, it's a description of persons and events untraceable in other sources. The uh, author himself alludes to using his mind's eye in composing his work while trashing all the other 11 sources of history. Uh, 
for misplaced learning. So this gentleman, Khalid Bashir Ahmad, says that this is all fiction. Uh, Rahul Pandita says that the truth is on our side in the form of the Sun Temple. So Rahul Pandita says that this the history has the Kalhana Rajatarangini history has to be trusted because it is factual. Rajneesh Shukla says Kalana's Raj Tarangini is an unbiased, clear historical writing without any pressure from the kings. Uh, K.N. Pandita, former director for the Central of Central, Center for Central Asian Studies, University of Kashmir, says, uh, yeah, Buddhism and Hinduism were never at loggerheads in Kashmir. Uh, all that. Noor Ahmad Baba, professor of political science, Kashmir University, says that the Raj Tarangini is an exclusivist vision of Kashmir's history. It's being used to suit a certain hegemonic account of the past. Uh, and so on. So, so what you see is that certain people want to portray the Raj Tarangini as hegemonic and fictional. But overall, <laughs> you see that it's one of the most uh, one of the most expansive uh, accounts of ancient Indian history. So the scholars, the, the it's a few scholars with a certain ideological mindset, typically a leftist mindset. They are the ones who seek to discredit the Rajatarangini. They say there is no evidence for what is being claimed in the Rajatarangini. Well, the evidence was all been destroyed. There would have been copious amounts of supporting evidence, which you would have found in the great libraries of the ancient Indian universities. But all these universities were destroyed and the libraries burned about a thousand years ago by the invading Turks. So nothing of that is left. So somehow the Raj Tarangini has survived, but because we don't have any supporting literary evidence, so it is being discredited as being fiction. So my opinion is that this is all a proper historical account and it's a, it's an incredibly valuable historical account of the past 5000 years of indian history and kashmiri history so certain people will keep on trying to discredit discredit everything good so if you look at the raj tarangini it, it talks about um, essentially it begins from the mahabharat era and it gives entire lists of lineages of kings and dynasties that you will not find anywhere else because everything else has been destroyed. So it's an incredibly valuable source of information of the various kings and dynasties and rulers and queens that ruled and administered and enriched India in the past. The invaders tried to destroy all this information so that they can portray India as, a, as, a, as an ahistorical and pathetic place. But because the Raj Tarangini has survived, that narrative has been, uh, well, it's not quite succeeded. So they are trying to now discredit the Raj Tarangini and discredit Kalhana himself. Let us not get swayed by this propaganda. Krishna says, why did the Nazis flee to Argentina? So after the end of the Second World War, the Nazis were defeated. Germany was occupied by half of it by the Soviets, half of it by the Americans. And the Americans obviously had to demonize the Nazis for good reasons and for not good reasons. Obviously, the Nazis uh, conducted the genocide of the Romani people and the, and the Jewish people. So clearly, that's extreme evil. And obviously, Hitler was extremely evil. Uh, so they had to make public examples of many of these people. Many of uh, there were these Nuremberg trials, etc. And many of these Nazi leaders 
were put to death they were hanged there were other executions you know summary summary justice on the battlefield or after the battle a lot of that happened so many of these nazis were very valuable they were very competent people they had great skills think about someone like werner von braun werner von braun is the father of the us space program he, he was a pioneering rocket scientist he is the guy who developed the v1 and v2 rockets the first cruise missile and the first ballistic missile of all time and he developed this in germany uh, to do that he had to be part of the nazi war machine so he was an extremely valuable asset and then the americans took him to the us and they put him in charge of various things eventually he was in charge of the saturn 5 rocket program which put the few first human beings on the moon so he is one example of a very valuable nazi there were lots of others okay the nazi war machine the nazi administration it was evil for sure but it was extremely competent extremely efficient that's a lot of talent a huge amount of talent and the americans did not want to waste all the talent so lots of these nazis they were given safe refuge in argentina let's understand the americans had the monroe doctrine it still continues which means north america and south america can only be under us control and domination so if something was happening in argentina it is impossible the americans did not know about this and if nazis were being transported all the way from europe all the way across the atlantic ocean to south america it would it is impossible to imagine this would happen without the americans knowing about it so people like adolf eichmann uh, that evil dr mengele and lots of other nazis made their way into argentina argentina gave them safe refuge and it's possible that the that some of them even provided certain services to more powerful nations because they were very competent people so argentina gave them refuge other nations and other organizations we don't know who they may or may not be maybe great powers they gave them safe passage so that all the nazis don't get destroyed and the talent can be used in some way or the other this is i mean we don't know for sure what happened who did all this but it's clear that lots of prominent nazis ended up in argentina so argentina gave them safe refuge and somehow these guys got safe passage across such large distances okay abhigya says what do you think about the cigar shaped oddity from outer space oumuamua was it artificial as it had no comet tail okay let's put oumuamua on the screen shall we give me a second let's put oumuamua on the screen so it is depicted as something that looks like like it has a cigar shape here we are so this was a visitor from outer space that uh, that uh, passed through the solar system through the inner solar system i think in 27 yeah it says 2017 so it was detected after it was already it had already gone around the sun uh, achieved its closest distance to the sun and it was already speeding out of the solar system by this time uh so this is the kind of trajectory it took and it was detected when it was already going past the orbit of the earth and it was like uh, about 80 lunar distances away from the earth that's when it was detected it had already made its uh, closest approach to the sun and it was traveling at incredibly high velocity which means that it was passing through the solar system only once and most and it will never return the the trajectory is hyperbolic 
not parabolic or circular or whatever or elliptical sorry yeah it's a hyperbolic trajectory as far as I, as i remember so why is this curious so there are certain things about this object which make it very unusual first of all it is at least 10 times as long as it is broad and you don't ever find any asteroid or space rock or comet that has such dimensions so let's say it's a it's a 100 meters long and 10 meters wide at most it's a very long and thin object that is one strange thing about it that's like one in a thousand kind of characteristics at least secondly it is it was extremely reflective it gave off a lot of light which was reflected sunlight that was being reflected from this thing's surface it was so reflective that it looked like it was made of polished metal it was at least minimum 10 times more reflective than your regular space rocks that's the second thing which is strange about this object the third thing is that it accelerated away from the sun typically if a space rock goes around the sun the you can predict the 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 speed at which it goes away based on the speed at which it approached it's simple mathematics and newton's laws now this thing oumuamua it actually accelerated away from the sun it did not go in a in a constant uh, speed there was acceleration as if there is a rocket jet behind it of some kind but as it went further from the sun the acceleration decreased as the inverse square of the as the inverse square of the distance from the sun which is very strange it's like an inverse power law kind of thing so now we have certain objects that behave like this they are called comets okay we have comets that accelerate away from the sun because the sun makes the 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 body the the body of the comet it heats up and it ejects water vapor and dust and gas out of it which makes the comet accelerate but comets they accelerate unevenly there are gaps and fissures in the rock and these jets come out in unexpected directions so that's why the acceleration is stop and start in the case of a comet but in case of oumuamua it was a smooth acceleration very smooth acceleration as if you have an actual rocket engine behind it nobody saw any rocket engine but and then they tried to look for carbon dioxide and gas and dust through very through the spitzer space telescope and other telescopes not not anything nothing was detected so in the case of a comet when it's accelerating we can see why it's accelerating because you have this entire comet tail behind it which is pushing the comet forward and accelerating the comet in the case of oumuamua nothing was detected detected no ejection of of dust or 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 water vapor or in or carbon dioxide or anything was detected at, at all so it was somehow accelerating but there was no mechanism that could account for the acceleration so it's like a one in a million kind of object uh so the 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 physicist avi loeb the israeli physicist i believe he said that this is behaving like a solar sail so uh, so there are two possible shapes that this object could have had one is a cigar shape and the other is a pancake pancake shape okay so pancake also from the side it will look like a cigar if it was pancake shaped if it was metallic then that can that can uh, explain the acceleration the acceleration will be because of solar radiation 
it's called radiation pressure radiation itself can make you uh, make a solar sail accelerate you know uh, so let me show you what a solar sail looks like let's put this back on the screen solar sail so this is what a solar sail looks like and this is accelerated and propelled merely by sunlight by the radiation pressure of sunlight so if umuamua was a solar sail that would totally ex explain its acceleration and the fact that the acceleration slowed down the further it was away from the sun so it was highly reflective so reflective that it could have been made of polished metal metal it was possibly a disc shaped object which is the shape kind of like a solar sail and its acceleration was again something that can be explained by its by it being a solar sail so yeah all of these factors they make it look like this could have been very much artificial but obviously we have no actual evidence for this we only have some data and this data is very strange okay but when this guy avi loeb uh, spoke about this he wrote i think he wrote a book about this so he was ridiculed by the scientific community which tends which tends to be extremely uh, conservative but i think uh, it makes kind of it kind of makes sense what he has said what is spoken about this and written about this so yeah we don't know for sure what it was but its behavior and its properties were very strange and they can't really be explained unless you you think of it as a solar sail Swaptil so says, "What are what is the intermediate mass black hole, and uh, and we are yet to find evidence for its existence. Do we have? I think they have found some intermediate mass black holes, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, what's an intermediate mass black hole? So, we we typically have observed two kinds of black holes. One is the stellar mass black hole, which is typically three to ten times mass of our sun, the sun. So typical stellar mass black holes are three to ten times the mass of the sun. Sometimes you could say the upper ranges of a hundred solar masses. That's your stellar mass black hole. And then you have supermassive black holes, which are typically a million times and more than the sun's mass. So the stellar-sized black hole, it is born from the uh, explosive deaths of a star in a supernova explosion. Some mechanisms show that it can a star can even become a black hole without ever undergoing a supernova explosion. That's possible. A star may just wink out of existence, suddenly go dark. That could happen. So that's how a supermassive black hole is typically formed at the end of a supernova explosion. And supermassive black holes, uh, we don't quite know how they were formed, but they exist and we have observed them. They typically live at the heart of every galaxy. Our own galaxy, the Milky Way has a supermassive black hole at its heart, at its center. And there is another kind of black hole that is hypothesized, never seen, the primordial microscopic black holes that may have been formed in enormous quantities in the immediate aftermath of the Big Bang. But we haven't observed them yet. So now there is one candidate black hole, which is called the intermediate mass black hole, which whose mass lies between 100 solar masses at the lower limit and a million solar masses at the upper limit. Typically something like a 10,000, 100,000 solar masses kind of mass range. But there is no mechanism by which such black holes can be formed that we know of. So that's what it is. And that's the missing gap. But these days, I think astronomers and uh, uh, instruments have detected certain black holes, like this one which was de de detected at the heart of a certain galaxy. It should have been a supermassive black hole, but it, it was actually an intermediate mass black hole, like 10,000 solar masses kind of thing, which is squarely in the, in, in the intermediate mass black hole range. 
So it's still a mystery how such black holes could exist. We don't know of any mechanism that can explain the formation of a black hole of that mass. Even supermassive black holes, we're not quite sure how they would form. One mechanism is that a black hole is formed in the very early universe and it merges with other black holes and, and sucks in lots of uh, material from other stars and whatever it is and eventually it accretes and grows larger. That's one mechanism, but will, will it reach that supermassive mass in the amount of time the universe has existed? Lots of questions abound. So that's why intermediate mass black holes are kind of a mystery. I think we have observed at least two or three of these thus far, but we're not quite sure how they would have been created and formed because we don't know of any mechanism that can reliably create such black holes. So that's why it's it's a mystery. Dipanjana says, after listening to you, I can relate and I lost my interest in this kind of education. I It was never my intention to make people lose interest in education. Okay, so she says that everything feels boring about it and now I hate it. How would I even prepare for the IIT or others if I know that pre preparation that these are not useful outside the academic campus? Can you discuss some career options for science students and gu guide more realistically? Okay, look, a long time ago, I I bought a few self-help books, like 20 years ago, okay? There was this one that I remember. It's by a guy called, I think it was Stephen Tracy or something like that his name was. And the book's, book's name was Eat That Frog. I think it's still lying around somewhere in my house. Eat that frog. So the book's central idea is that at the beginning of the day, when you wake up and you are about to get to work, you should eat the frog, which means that do the most unpleasant thing first. Get it out of the way so that you can have a nice day after that. So today, if I have five tasks to do, and one of them is extremely is is, is exceptionally unpleasant and difficult, do that first. Get it over with. If it is important. So similarly, if you want to have a good career and a good life, whether you like it or not, a good degree matters. So you have to motivate yourself by telling yourself, I am going to have a successful life and career. And for that, a good degree matters. So that's why you should go through it. Sometimes you have to do unpleasant things in order to enjoy success in the long run. So, and you, you know what? Whatever knowledge and skills you acquire in the IITs, these are actually going to be useful outside the academic campus. Let's say hypothetically you do mechanical engineering. With that degree and with those skills, you can help the nation by building road, roads and bridges and railway infra infrastructure. You can actually contribute a lot to the nation with those skills. Let's say you do a degree in, in mechanical, uh, let's say aeronautical engineering. You can start an aeronautical company or you can join ISRO and work in, in rocket design. You know, at the, in the beginning, when the rocket is going up, it has to go through the atmosphere. In that, aeronautical design comes in very handy. You can design airplanes, you can design fighter planes. There is so much you can do. So engineering is applied science. It has a huge amount of applications outside the academic campus. You can truly contribute to the nation and you can truly become successful and prosperous and rich with these skills that you acquire in the IITs. Same goes with computer engineering, computer science, all, all those things. There are so many of these skills that are actually valuable and they can really be deployed effectively in real life and they can contribute to yourself, to your success and, and prosperity and to that of the nation. So for science students, especially in the engineering uh, applied sciences uh, domain, these skills are extremely valuable. 
So I would say, please focus on these things, especially if you have an inclination towards science. If you're good at science, you should definitely do this. These skills will be valuable. And as the nation grows, as the economy grows, more jobs will be needed. More skilled people will be needed. We need to build an enormous amount of infrastructure. We need to build so much. We have we are at $3.5 trillion. We need to reach at least $10 trillion in the next 10 years. That's And by 2050, we have to be the world's largest economy. It will happen only through the, the, the skills and the knowledge that you acquire through degrees in places like the IITs and the NITs and all that. So I think it's very exciting if you are trying to get into the IIT. I think you should really motivate yourself that you can really do a whole lot of good with such skills and knowledge and degree. And you should totally plunge into the preparation. It's exciting. And when you're preparing, you're competing against your peers. Isn't that fun? I mean, why do we enjoy sports? Because it's competition. Let's see who's the best. So why don't you do it and show who's the best? Yeah. So I think you should not be demotivated like this. The problems in the edu education system lie in the humanities, in the so-called social non-sciences, in, in history, these in, in literature. That's where the education system is totally rotten. In science, it's much better, especially the IITs and the NITs, etc. They still have reasonably good standards. There are issues there also. But once you get the knowledge and the skills and the degree, you can do a lot of good. So please don't be demoralized, demotivated. Go for it and go succeed and contribute to the nation. All right. All the best, Deepanjana. Monish says, how to prevent the resistance we will face if the education system is reformed by actual in the actual means? We have faced so much backlash during farmer protests, etc. How to prevent it? Yes, it's a good example you give, the backlash during the farmer protests. All these protests were orchestrated by external forces, which have a lot of control of, 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 let's say, certain media outlets and possibly perhaps certain possibly political parties uh, within India. Possibly, perhaps, it, it is a possibility. Definitely lots of media outlets are controlled or, or funded from, from abroad. So they were able to create a narrative. And whatever... Uh, activities happened on the streets. These are also organized, well-organized and well-funded. And they, they sought to paralyze Delhi and other parts of, of Northern India, etc., to make it look like there are this enormous farmer protest happening. And you had various influencers who were supporting this. So it kind of brainwashed the entire public into believing the far farm laws are terrible for India. Nobody actually read the farm laws and, and tried to examine what these laws were. So so lies were able to succeed. And why were they able to succeed? It's because the government of India chose not to crush these protests. The Indian government has the control of the entire state machinery. State as in the state, the nation state of India. The Indian government, the central government could have crushed these protests if it so desired. It chose not to. Why did it choose not to? Because the moment you take any action, you know, through the police against these protests and clear the roads, clear the streets, and you know, all that, you're going to have some violence and all that stuff because they are, they want that. The protesters have been told to provoke the government into violence. So once you do that, the entire world will start its bigger propaganda of portraying India as, as, as a fascist nation, as an undemocratic nation, all, all that. So from the big picture, long-term perspective, it was the government decided that let this go on and let it die its own natural death. 
and they actually withdrew the farm laws because the big picture in the long term of the uh, the long term picture is more important than anything you do in the short term so similarly if indian go india's government decides to genuinely reform the education system there's going to be the same sort of thing that's going to happen they're going to claim that india is now going backwards it is it is interfering in education it's trying to brainwash people when actually the reverse is happening we're going to actually clean up the education system so this is not the right time for this so i did say earlier in this uh, live stream that i am very disappointed th- about the fact that the education system has not been reformed but i kind of understand why it's so this is not the right time the right when will when will it be the right time when india is much more powerful than what it is today right now there are other forces that are way more powerful than us and they can well they can hurt us in a lot of ways by tarnishing india's reputation by making it hard for india for for indians to travel abroad because you are you are seen as as belonging to a nation that is um, undemocratic and which doesn't respect human rights and all that so it's going to be difficult so right now we're trying to have as little friction as possible and focusing on the big things which is economic growth eventually once we are at a certain mark maybe the 10 trillion dollar mark we will go ahead and do this and tell the world to take a hike so it's all about doing the right thing at the right time and certain things for certain things perhaps the right time is not now so i even though it is disappointing for me personally that the education system which is in such a big mess is not being reformed i still do understand why it is not being touched right now because this is most likely not the right time to take up that fight that fight will be taken up at the at an appropriate time in the future all right we are we have crossed the 2 hour mark let's take some other questions i as always i have whole lot more questions which i will not be able to take what shall i take um interesting sahib haha <laughs> says what's the history of the violin is it somehow related related to the ravan hatha i i am pretty sure that almost nobody in india knows what the ravan hatha is the violin has a 500 year history the earliest appearance of the violin or violin like bowed instruments in uh, in art in in paintings etc it, it goes back about 500 years at most in europe the violin is a european instrument maybe it came via the arabic or islamic world perhaps but let's take a look at the ravan hatha ravan hatha one second let me put that on the screen so this is a very ancient instrument that we've had in india let's put this on the screen this is a very ancient bowed instrument which is played in the in the in a in the same way as the violin but it's way more ancient than the violin and you find it being used in the folk music of northern and western india typically it is uh, rajasthani musicians who play the ravan hatha and and sing the folk songs and all that very melodious very 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 nice sounding instrument uh, it's a folk it's it's termed as a folk instrument the ravan hatha and it is played in a, in much the same way the, that you would play the violin and it's clearly way more ancient than the violin what does wikipedia have to say about this let's see it's an ancient bowed string instrument used in all the indian subcontinent it has been suggested as an ancestor of the violin so what could have happened we know that a thousand years ago the the islamic world the the turks and the arabs etc they came to india 
seeking knowledge. They took out all the knowledge before destroying the Indian universities and libraries. And they would have also come across the Indian instruments, such as the Ravanatha. And they would have taken these instruments to the uh, to the Arabic, Islamic, Turkic world, whatever. And, and what could have happened is that this would have this instrument would have then given rise to the various bowed instruments in the Arabic or Islamic world, like the Rabab, etc. And eventually this all made its way into Europe. So these Islamic uh, scholars or translators, etc., travelers, they got access to India about a thousand years ago. So it makes sense that by the 11th or 12th century, these instruments were prevalent in the Islamic world in the form of the rabab or whatever they, they converted that into. And by the 15th, 16th century, these instruments had made their way into Europe and they became the ancestors of the violin. It is very plausible that this is what happened. But once again, our historians have not looked into this. So we don't know for sure. There is so much that our researchers, our historians can research, but they obstinately choose not to. They will simply keep on doing whatever the hell they've been doing for the past 70 years. I'm sure there are a few good ones, but I don't see any real research output about these topics that are so fascinating. Uh, Samarth says, is Erdogan's dream of the Ottoman Empire, of a neo-Ottoman Empire, shattered because of, the, because of the earthquakes? Do you see him losing elections this year? Right, so we recently had these twin earthquakes in Turkey, extremely powerful devastating earthquakes that have caused a huge amount of destruction, hundreds of billions of dollars worth possibly. I'm not sure what the total figure is, but very high uh, destruction, huge economic damage, lots of people died. Also, India responded very rapidly. India sent one of the biggest medical contingents and uh, search and rescue uh, contingents to Turkey. And we did what we could. We were one of the first responders and one of the biggest responders to this humanitarian crisis. Uh, so large parts of northern Turkey, etc. have been totally devastated. And the first response is typically, you know, saving human lives and giving medical treatment. So that stage is gone now. Nobody, whoever is buried there under the rubble, it's impossible they would have survived until now. So the rescuing human lives stage is gone and all the injuries, most of the injuries would be treated, treated by now and all the lives that could be saved have been saved. The real work begins now, reconstructing the destroyed cities, towns, etc. in Turkey. That's going to take a long time. And people are going to be really, really upset and angry that it's not happening immediately. That's going to be a big challenge for Erdogan. So it's going to be a big challenge for him to retain uh, his being in government, being in power and, and be re-elected re as the president of Turkey this year. It's going to be a big challenge for him. And obviously because of the economic damage, it's, going, it's, it's definitely going to affect the Turkish economy. If it affects your, your economy, it definitely affects your military power and all that. So yes, uh, I would not say that the dream, the, the dream of the neo-Ottoman empire has been shattered, but it's certainly been, it's received a big setback. I'm sure Mr. Erdogan will still dream of, you know, recreating a new Ottoman Empire or something like that. But yes, it's it's uh, definitely, these dreams have definitely received a big setback, for sure. Okay, a uh, lot more questions. I will not take them now because we're almost at the end. Let's take some questions from the live chat. Let's take from the live chat. <laughs> 
Giuseppe de Fraia says, what religion please should I aspire to join? I am not a fan of Abrahamic religions because they are misogynistic and racist. As an atheistic male, as an atheist male, can I join Hinduism, Dharmic religion? Thanks. Listen, it's 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 got to come from you. It's got to come from your heart. What are you most attracted towards? What are you drawn towards? Um, if you are an atheistic person, if you don't believe in God, clearly you cannot join any of the Abrahamic religions because it is mandatory to be- belong to believe in the Abrahamic God in those religions. So the Abrahamic religions clearly are out now. When it comes to the Dharmic religions, you can be an atheist and be be and live a Dharmic lifestyle. Um, for instance, in in the in the Dharmic umbrella of religions or or of philosophical schools of thought, which is all part of Hinduism. There is this path called the Charvaka path, which is an atheistic path, materialistic path. And it's definitely still part of Hinduism. So you can be an atheist and be a Hindu for sure, even a Jain or, or a Buddhist, even if you're atheist. So, and obviously there are other paths also like, like Shinto, which is kind of like the Japanese form of Hinduism, much more complex than Japanese Buddhism for sure. Then you have Tengrism, if you if you are inclined towards the Mongolian uh, culture. Tengrism, again, it's a polytheistic uh, belief system, very similar to Hinduism once again, which is why it was so easy for Mongolia to absorb Indian culture. Then you have Tao, you have Confucianism, which is all atheism. Uh, you have Zoroastrianism, which is a polytheistic uh, belief system, which which is now portrayed as monotheistic and so much more. So I think it's entirely up to you what, you, what resonates most with you. And uh, yeah, so the 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 religious path that accepts and welcomes and respects everybody is the Dharmic path, which is nowadays called Hinduism, which includes, and this is controversial, but it includes Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism as well. So it's entirely up to you, and you have to find your the, the right answer. So I can give you some choices, but in, at the end of the day, it has to be your choice, your decision. Okay, okay, let us, let us, Seven says, Abhijit Chowda, you said you love Pakistanis. I said I have nothing against the people of Pakistan. I do not wish to see them suffer. Okay, I wish to see the Pakistani people are after all our relatives. They are the descendants of our own ancestors. They are our own cousins. And I do not wish any human being any harm or sadness or suffering or misery or pain. So I will repeat this. I have nothing against the people of Pakistan. I would like to see them happy in their own way, whatever way is best they, they feel is best for them. Let them be happy. Let them succeed. Let their children be happy and prosperous. I have nothing against them. But the nation state of Pakistan has to be dealt with and dismantled because it is a terrorist nation. And the root cause of the terrorism is the Pakistani army. I have never said that I love the Pakistanis. I said that I, I wish them well. That's what I have said all right all right i think we will stop over here it's two hours 11 12 minutes um well past our usual limit so we're gonna end over here this session thank you very much as always for all the wonderful questions as always i have not been able to take all the questions and there are thousands more so thank you so much i really appreciate it i am really honored that you ask me so many questions and i will keep on taking as many as i can in future episodes thank you very much take care keep working hard Keep raising your standards and I will see you very soon. Thank you. Good day. Good day. Goodbye. See you soon.